So, 1 Peter, chapter 4, we'll begin at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ... You are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, you should not be. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, or a thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for the judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Thank you, Rick. It's funny uh, listening to Wim talk about what he teaches the uh, preachers not to say, which is be good. And what was the last command in that reading? Do good. So uh, I'll try and put that within a frame of grace for you, brother, and uh, we'll see how we go. Now, we've been working through the book of 1 Peter, and we're coming towards the end. Uh, And uh, we've been exploring some of the themes, uh, particularly the theme of suffering for our faith, that uh, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who were aliens and strangers. Uh, On one hand, not fitting in with their culture because they had been called by God to come out of it. They were his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation that they might offer spiritual sacrifices, which we've seen is that they might live such good lives among those who don't know Christ that others might see their good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So that's where we've come. I've just summarised seven sermons or six sermons in about two minutes. So, yeah, okay, hopefully that all made sense for you. And today we've come up to the part, uh, this part's very dear to me, uh, 
namely because when I started and finished at the hills, the first half of this passage that Rick read for us was actually the passage that was preached on on both occasions. So this is a bit close to my heart. Let's dive in. It's important that we know the time, isn't it? I know for some of you, uh, you've taken note of what time my sermon started this morning. You've, some of you have even written it down. I know that. Uh, that is true. Others, you know, you've just taken a general vibe. Yep, okay. Uh, but when I'm saying know the time, I'm not saying 10.36. Uh, I'm talking about know the season. Know the bigger frame. It's like when these things start appearing uh, in the shops, we start going, hey, it must be July. Because uh, Christmas is coming, isn't it? And that's about framing our expectations because we really do need all that time to get ready for Christmas. But Peter isn't saying, is it September? He's not saying, is it 10.36? Peter is really keen that we know the time. And he tells us what time it is there in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Peter puts the frame, the time frame, straight in front of us. He's telling us, as he announces that the end of all things is near, that this is the fulfillment of God's purposes. That God's great drama of creation and redemption is coming to an end. Not just that things are about to stop, but everything's coming to its completion, its goal, its fulfillment. It's like... The last act of the play is about to come. We've seen what's happened so far and we have gone on that journey and we are getting to that point where everything is coming and everything is being brought together. But we know that this time is a difficult time for God's people. Peter's been telling us it's a time of testing, a time of opposition. So we're going to explore this morning what help does God give us in this time? We've got four points. Conveniently, they all start with P. Okay? Prayer, people, perspective, and perseverance. So let's dive in. First thing, what's Peter say? He says, the end of all things is near, therefore, be alert and of sober mind. What he's saying is, Be focused. Now, I know for some of you, you've got exams coming. Yes, it's the end of semester, end of term. You've got exams coming. The ideal is that you have crystallized everything you've learnt this semester. You understand it perfectly. So when that question hits you, you go, I can answer this. Your mind is focused. Your mind is alert. You know how to deal with the issue that is in front of you. Now, Peter is saying you've got to have the same kind of mindset. Your mind needs to be focused around, not around engineering or maths or the history of something or other that you've been studying, but your mind is focused around what it means to live with the end in view. Why particularly is Peter so concerned? He wants them to be so focused so that they might be able to pray. The first thing that Peter gives them, the first resource, the first aid that God gives us when we face this testing in this time before the end comes is prayer. 
It's a vivid reminder. It's a vivid reminder that we actually don't have the resources ourselves. That we can't just knuckle down and make it happen by our own determination and grit. That we go to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we go to him seeking the strength, seeking the wisdom that we need. Because prayer is ultimately an act of dependence. It's ultimately an act of faith. And Peter says, the first thing you do, the first thing you should be doing is pray. Now, if you're anything like me, and I rather suspect you are, we live in a culture that prides itself on self-sufficiency. You know, the the self-made man, the self-made woman, I did it my way, that kind of thing. Well, prayer fundamentally is a denial of that. It's actually saying, I can't do this. I need help. And it taps us into the one who truly can help us. And so Peter is saying, first and foremost, know the time. Focus your mind so that you might be able to pray. So you might be able to find the strength. So that you might be able to find the wisdom to live for Christ in time of the end. That's number one. Number two, we're moving fast, aren't we? You didn't think this thing was possible. Number two, God actually gives us not just access to him, not just the promise that he is listening to us, that he is attending to our prayers, that he will answer our prayers. He gives us a people who care. He gives us one another. He gives us church. And not just our Sunday morning gatherings, but he gives us that network of relationships. Now, what do you think of when you think of church? One of the the disadvantages of actually calling our Sunday meetings, our Sunday gatherings church, is you kind of think church is something I do rather than church is a people to which I belong. And we find ourselves very functional. We go to church and then we go home. But that's not a biblical view of church. A biblical view of church is God, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your faith in him, has saved you into church. So Jesus has bound you not only to the Father and himself, but he's bound you to one another. We belong here. But that goes against our grain. Like we're a self-sufficient society, we're a society that views relationships in terms of what we get out of them. But that's not a biblical view on relationships. It's not a biblical view on church. We have a problem. We tend to dip into relationships for as long as they work for us. And then when they no longer really work for us, we step out. We see this across every aspect of our life, but it's very alive and well in church. But it's not meant to be like that. God gives us church as the essential place where we grow together, where we persevere together in Christ. Why? Because none of us can do it alone. Our Father is with us, but he gives us one another. Now, some of you might be old enough that you remember Rocky, yes? Now, can I put the 
Can I do the accent? I don't, I don't know. Uh, Rocky's being quizzed by his mate. What does he see in Adrian? Adrian's his girlfriend and becomes his wife. Rocky, profound Sylvester Stallone wisdom moment at the moment. She got gaps. I got gaps. Together, we fill gaps. I don't know if I did Rocky very well for you there. But I thought that captures church, doesn't it? That God actually puts a whole bunch of people together who are vastly different. Different ages, different ethnicities, different genders, different experience, different backgrounds. But together, he gives us to one another and we fill gaps. He gives us three things about his people. He gives us love, he gives us hospitality and service. Peter draws our attention there. He says in verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. If we are going to live together, if we are going to live as God's people, if we're going to have a thick community that is bound together, that supports one another, we need love. Because frankly, you're objectionable. And I'm objectionable. And the person next to you, they're objectionable as well. It's going to be a time where they are going to get up your nose and you're going to get up their nose. And so Peter hits straight up front and he says, you need to love each other and not just love each other, but love each other deeply. And then in case you didn't get it, he drums it in and he says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. The church is a community of redeemed sinners, not perfected sinners, but redeemed sinners. And he says, if you are going to exist together, if you are going to persevere together, you need to love each other deeply. This doesn't mean that when someone sins against us, that doesn't matter. But it means that because of our love for God and for one another, that we actually refuse to let it break the bond between us. Sin would come in and divide love. Love maintains the relationship. Peter calls us to stop the spiral of revenge. You know, he tells us not to answer evil with evil, but with blessing. This is the same thing. Do not answer sin with sin of your own, but with love. Love that overcomes the division that comes with sin. You can't control what someone else does to you. You're not responsible for what someone else does to you. But you actually are responsible for what you do in response. And that is what Peter says. He says, love, love. Let's keep going. Verse 9, he says, not only love each other deeply, but offer hospitality without grumbling. This open-hearted sharing of faith, not just come round for a meal, although that is a great expression of hospitality. This is a loving sharing of life, of actually opening your home, your resources, your, your life, your time to others so that they get to know you, so that you get to know them. It is a practical expression of love and think about how powerful this would be. You live in a society that rejects you that turns away from you, that casts you out. 
Perhaps your family, because you name the name of Christ, has said, we want nothing to do with you. You are a shame to us. The world excludes, but God's people are meant to welcome in, meant to embrace. Imagine the power of that hospitality. Peter goes on. Next verse, verse 10, he says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, love each other, show hospitality and serve. Serve. He gives us gifts in a really big picture here. Speaking and serving kind of covers pretty much all of life. He's not hung up about all the particular gifts that Paul unpacks in Romans or Corinthians. But here he says, God has given us, he's given us gifts. He's given some of us extraordinary things, some of us just regular things. It doesn't matter, but they are all gifts from God. They are given by him for others. Whatever gift you have received from God for others, to serve others, he tells us. We so often get this wrong. Back when I became a Christian back in the 80s, we used to do gift inventories. Did anyone ever do one of these? And you kind of, you go to answer all this question here. My number one uh, gift was celibacy. Uh, make of that whatever you'd like. Um, I'm not quite sure. Married with four children. But anyway, um, there we have it. Uh, but the obsession was, I have to find my gifts and I have to express my gifts and it all becomes about me. But Peter says, no, 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 your gifts are not about you. It's about the one who gave them to you, God, and the ones he gave them to you for, the people that you serve. And the ultimate goal is his glory. So as we think about our life together, and as we think about serving one another, we recognize that God has equipped us with what we need. He has given us gifts to serve others for his glory. Peter reminds us of this as he calls us stewards. A steward's a manager. They don't own the house, but they manage the house. We don't own the gift. It's not ours, but we use it. We use it for the one who gave us for his purposes, and we use it in a way that reflects his character. God has given us not only prayer, but he's given us one another, his people, as a great gift, as a great gift to help us persevere. What else? Number three, he's given us some perspective. He says in verse 12, Dear friends, Dear friends, I think is a bit lame. I'd love you to cross that out in your Bible and write, literally, it says, beloved. I don't know, when you think about one another, do you walk in and go, beloved? Because that's what Peter is talking to the churches that he's writing as. And it's not because they are particularly lovely, although some of them probably are, but it's the love that he has for them in Christ. And he says, beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. When you suffer, are you surprised? When you faced opposition, does it shock you? We live in a world that kind of views suffering and that kind of stuff as abnormal. Our normal life is happy, healthy, smiles, all that kind of stuff. Peter says, no. No, the end of all things is near. The time that you live in is not characterized by universal happiness and smiles with the occasional blip. He says, don't be surprised. He tells us it is normal, but he is not saying that it is natural. This is not God's purpose in his creation, but in this time we should expect it. We should expect that this is life in a fallen world. But if you remember the vision at the end, Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4, the promise that God will wipe every tear from every eye, that suffering and death and mourning and pain will pass away, that promise stands and God will bring that about. But now we should not be surprised when we face the fiery trial. We shouldn't be shocked when we suffer for Christ's name. We shouldn't be appalled that someone might speak against our good deeds and blaspheme God. We shouldn't be surprised, Peter says. It is normal, but not natural. Not only should we not be surprised, but it shouldn't cause us to fear. I want to draw this out. Verse 13, I've bolded up certain words there for you just to draw out the contrast. We think of suffering and opposition and pain. Brings us down, doesn't it? It's a negative. (laughs) What's Peter say? He says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God. When you face suffering, rejoice, be overjoyed. You are blessed and praise God. Is that, is that what goes through your mind? There's a part of me that I want to sort of sit there. If, I, if, if Peter was talking to me and I hadn't had time to sort of digest it, I'd be going, are you serious? Are you serious? These guys are, are giving me a, a terrible time. I've lost my job because of my faith. My family won't talk to me and you're saying I'm blessed. You're saying that I should rejoice, that I should praise God. Let's unpack this and see if we can get the perspective that Peter is trying to help us see. Verse 13, he tells us that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. Surely that takes your suffering to that next level, doesn't it? We are sharing the sufferings of Christ. What's he mean? Well, let me explain a little bit of this. Do you remember the story of the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road? He's going off uh, 
fanatical persecutor, hater of Christians. He's going off to Damascus to round up the Christians, drag them home, throw them in jail uh, and do who knows what with them. But he encounters Jesus on the road. Now, for those of you familiar with your Bible, can you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, he doesn't, does he? What's he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? It takes our sufferings to another level. Peter here is telling us something that Paul talks about in one uh, Colossians 1 verse 24, where he talks about filling up what is yet to be completed of the sufferings of Christ. Not his atoning death and resurrection, that's done. But as God's people suffer, as Christ's people suffer, he suffers with us. Gives us some perspective, doesn't it? Verse 14, he tells us that this is evidence that we are the real thing. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. No one bothers persecuting counterfeit Christianity. Inoffensive, nice, blend-in Christianity. Why bother? But Peter is saying, if, you're, if you are suffering for your faith, it is evidence that you are the real deal. You are suffering for the name of Christ. And you should praise God that you share that name. You bear that name. He then goes further in verse 17. And he says, why? Why is it good that we have this suffering? Why is it good that we are identified as Christ's people? For it is time, he says in verse 17, for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What's Peter saying? He's saying the judgment that we all will face at the end. Romans 14.10 tells us we all will stand before God, God's judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. For all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. All is all. We're all going to stand before God. We're all going to be judged. And Peter is saying that judgment for God's people is beginning now. How do we understand that? When we think of judgment, we tend to be thinking of judges convicting us and sending us to jail. But we need to recognize that judgment is the act of the judge and the judge will both condemn as well as vindicate. Jesus himself, Peter writes, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and was vindicated. And because of his death and resurrection, we know that we have nothing to fear. But the act of the judge, as it is being displayed now, is sorting the sheep from the goats, to use Jesus' image. The wheat is starting to be sifted from the weeds. The good fish from the bad fish. 
We all will face judgment, but we see as we suffer for Christ and stand for his name, that we are seeing the judgment of Christ, the vindication that comes to us from the judge in the here and the now. We're starting to see that. And so it is a confirmation that we are God's people and we are secure that the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. We need no fear. But what's he saying? It's hard for the righteous to be saved. Well, that's Jesus's words, isn't he? What did he say about the, the, the gate? The gate is narrow and the road, the road is hard. The road is the track up into the hills. Only a few find it. Mark 13 verse 10 tells us that unless, or verse 20, that if the Lord had not cut short the last days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Yeah, it's tough. But God has provided by his grace all that we need. And so he calls us to persevere. He calls us to persevere. He says, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and to continue to do good. Do you hear these words of comfort? As we face opposition, as people accuse us of all sorts of things that are not true, as people try and tear us down because of the God for whom we stand, Peter here is saying, you suffer according to God's will. He is over this. Not just in a way of, oh, I kind of knew it was going to happen. But he draws our attention to God's power in creation. The power of the one who said, let there be. And there was. He's telling us that our situation is not outside his purposes. That his grace is sufficient for us. And that we should entrust ourselves, we should commit ourselves to our faithful creator. Peter's reminding us of the power of the one who we call father. He's reminding us of his wisdom, of his might. And he says, trust him. Trust him. There's a challenge here too. There's a challenge because every time we suffer, we are asking ourselves, do we trust God? It's the difference, let me expand this, between if and although. Some people will say, if everything goes well, if I face no serious opposition, if my purposes and plans, my prayers are answered, then I will trust God. That's not real faith. Real faith says, although... Although things don't go well. Although I face opposition for my faith. Although it seems that the world is against me. Although my life is not all smiles and joy. Yet I will trust him. 
The first sees that God's job is to give us our version of the good life. The second sees that God actually knows what the good life truly is and we can trust him to give it. No one would choose a life of suffering. But do you imagine that God in his power and wisdom has a better grip on what a good life looks like than you in your finite, limit, limited state. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He said, The worldling blesses God when he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses him when he smites him, when you suffer for Christ's name. Because he believes him to be too wise to err. God does not make mistakes. Too good to be unkind. Our God is loving and gracious. He trusts him when he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. And so Peter says, Christian, as you suffer, as you stand for God against opposition, as it seems to be getting darker, as the end is coming closer, do not lose faith. Entrust yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. Receive his help. Go to him in prayer. Depend upon him. Ask him for the wisdom and the power that you need. Rest in the community of his people. Living, loving, serving. Trust his purposes for you and continue to do good. Because the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus walked this path before us. He walked through suffering, to death, to victory and glory. And he reigns. And the promise is, as Christ did, so will we. We walk through suffering and death and victory. But not our victory, his victory. His resurrection and his reign that we will share with him. Christ has gone before us, but he also walks this path with us. His spirit rests upon us, Peter tells us, and the Father is attentive to our prayers. But most of all, Christ walked this path for us. We are joined by our faith to him. His death, the death that he died, was for our sins. It was for our ransom. The death he died for us was also followed by the resurrection that guarantees ours. That we might have an inheritance that might never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. So brother, sister... When you suffer, when you suffer for Christ's name, when you suffer according to God's will, commit yourself to your faithful, your loving, your wise, your powerful creator and continue to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing, doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your father on the day he visits. Let's pray.
Father, it is hard. It is hard when we suffer, when we face the fiery ordeal, when people revile us, they do evil to us, they do sin against us because of your name. Father, but we know that what they have done to us is nothing compared to what they did to Christ. And as they did it to him and as he triumphed, he did that for us. And in him, through faith in him, we also triumph. Father, help us to rest in the victory won. Help us look for the day when there will be no more suffering, where your glory will be perfectly seen and where the victory will be fully realized. We know that the end is near and we ask, Lord, that you would bring it swiftly. But as we wait, let us wait patiently. Let us wait faithfully. Let us wait doing good that we might bring you glory in all things. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.